Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We'd like to begin by praying the Lenten prayer that we're doing, which is Psalm 51. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have mercy on me, God, in your kindness, in your compassion, blot out my offense. O wash me more and more from my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. My offenses truly I know them. My sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned. What is evil in your sight I have done? That you may be justified when you give sentence, and be without reproach when you judge. O see, in guilt I was born, a sinner was I conceived. Indeed you love truth in the heart. Then, in the secret of my heart, teach me wisdom. O purify me, then I shall be clean. O wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me here rejoicing and gladness, that the bones you have crushed may revive. From my sins turn away your face, and blot out all my guilt. A pure heart create for me, O God. Put a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, nor deprive me of your Holy Spirit. Give me again the joy of your help. With a spirit of fervor sustain me, that I may teach transgressors your ways, and sinners may return to you. O rescue me, God, my helper, and my tongue shall ring out your goodness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. For in sacrifice you take no delight. Burnt offering from me you would refuse. My sacrifice a contrite spirit, a humbled contrite heart you will not spurn. In your goodness show favor to Zion. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with lawful sacrifice, holocausts offered on your altar. And now let us pray together. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this week's show, Bishop reflects upon the lives of two saints whose feast days are coming up soon, St. Patrick and St. Joseph. Then it's on to a preview of the Diocesan Heritage Pilgrimage, a bus trip planned for this summer with Bishop Rhodes that will explore the places which led to the establishment of the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions from listeners. You can submit yours by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes. We're going to be answering questions that you've submitted. Uh, before we do, we've got a lot of things to talk about. First of all, today there was a, an event. It was a national school walkout day where uh, some of our schools in the diocese, I'm not sure how many were participating, were doing like a 17 minutes of silence or prayer or some were offering masses for those that lost their lives in the Florida school shooting. Uh, any comments or, or intentions for those people or any any of the, the schools that are concerned about safety and things like that? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I think that spiritual response to this uh, this tragedy is, is really important and that we really give attention to this problem in our society this these uh, episodes these horrible episodes of violence in schools so um yeah i had heard about some of our schools that were having masses or having times of prayer during that time 
So I definitely support that. And then that we also look at how, how are we addressing this problem, you mm-hmm. know, especially to make sure of the safety of our children. And of course, here in our own diocese, we have a lot of uh, measures for safety of in our Catholic schools and, and uh, of course, encourage our, all of our schools on the local level to follow certain protocols, et cetera, making sure, you know, for example, that uh, our schools are locked and people have can't just walk in and out without uh, being let in. I mean, there's all kinds of things. And, of course, working closely in tandem with our uh, security people, our police, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All right, well, definitely keep all of them in our prayers. Uh, Another thing that happens during Lent, it seems like every year, is a a pair of feast days that we have. March 17th is the feast day of St. Patrick, and March 19th is the feast of St. Joseph. Uh, A lot of parishes in the diocese named after these two saints. In St. Patrick's, we have parishes in Arcola, Fort Wayne, Ligonier, South Bend, Walkerton, and there's also St. Patrick's Oratory in Lagros. I want to talk more about St. Patrick a little bit, but before we do, can you explain what that oratory is? Oh, yes. It used to be a parish, one of the most historic parishes of our diocese. Of course, now created after that was St. Bernard's Parish in Wabash. So really, there's a connection between uh, this oratory of St. Patrick in Lagros, which is no longer a parish church, but it's good that we're able to keep that church open. And uh, ultimately, the pastor in Wabash has uh, oversight over it, but there's a group of laity that... um, plan some activities there and make sure it's preserved. And we have all these other parishes in the diocese named for this great patron saint of Ireland. So happy feast day to all our St. Patrick's parishioners and all those different parishes you mentioned. I think he's probably most famously known for the shamrock that uh, at least legend says that he used to explain the Trinity, that the three leaves were like the three persons of Christ. Any illustration of the of the Trinity is probably going to lack a perfect analogy. But what are some other things about St. Patrick that we know and can admire and, and look well, up to? I think this, uh, you know, his, his, he was very firm about the doctrine of the Trinity. I think, you know, um, in his, his work, The Confession, he records an ancient Irish creed of faith in the Trinity. So keeping in mind, you know, he lived not long after, I'd say the generation after, the um, Arian crisis that denied the divinity of Christ. Hmm. So there was a lot going on. So we had the Council of Nicaea in in the year 325, and then we had the First Council of Constantinople in the year 381, which uh, that council defined the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And, And that was just a few years before Patrick was born. So there were still some Arians around, by the way. So in a sense, St. Patrick he taught about the truth of the most holy trinity and uh i think we forget about that except for the idea of the shamrock (laughs) and i think you know as you said a legend but the idea of illustrating the doctrine of the trinity to the native people of ireland with the shamrock is uh is is fine you know it's uh but remember it's a it's an analogy Mm -hmm. so no analogy is perfect if you take that analogy too far it can be problematic because, you know, the shamrock, as you know, has the three leaves. So you see it's one and three, mm-hmm. like the Holy Trinity. But you can't press that too too far because 
the three leaves are part of the Shamrock. The three persons of the Blessed Trinity are not parts of God. Mm. Uh, God has no parts. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons. Mm -hmm. They're not three parts. So there's a limitation in that uh, symbol of the Shamrock. But maybe people haven't. You know, think <laughs> thought about that, but <laughs> yeah. But anyhow, I have nothing against the shamrock. Sure. You know, I can use it with children in, in in representing the Trinity. But just be careful; it's an analogy. Right, right. Yeah. Have you ever been to Ireland? I have twice. I was there as a seminarian when I went on a two month Eurail pass through Europe, and I loved it. And I went. I'll never forget. I I went on a ship. From France to Ireland, it was, and I got terribly seasick. I was ready to jump overboard. Uh, I, uh, but anyhow, you know, I have Irish roots. My uh, on my maternal grandmother's side, so my uh, Irish immigrants came from Donegal, which is uh, the northwest side of the island. But I just loved Ireland. I, and then I went again as a as a priest. Went with a friend of mine, and uh, on the second trip that I went to Ireland, I did get to Donegal, but I enjoyed visiting different shrines associated with St. Patrick and his missionary efforts in Ireland. And I enjoyed also visiting Our Lady of Knock, the shrine, the big Marian shrine. Uh And I also got to visit the uh, location of St. Kevin, my own patron in Glendalough. And there's a cave, he was a hermit and uh, there's a cave that he stayed in and prayed in overlooking this beautiful lake. And so I got to visit St. Kevin's while I was there. But I love the Irish people, their friendliness. The, uh, I, I love the Irish music. So I had those two trips, and it's a beautiful green island. Yeah. Well, the other feast that we mentioned was St. Joseph, which is Monday, March 19th. Uh, we've got eight St. Joseph parishes in our diocese. We have Fort Wayne, Garrett, LaGrange, Bluffton, Hessen Castle, Mishawaka, Roanoke, South Bend, and many schools, including my alma mater. Tell us about the life of St. Joseph. Oh my goodness. We don't have a whole lot in the scriptures and we have no words of St. Joseph recorded in in the scriptures. But we do see, especially when you read the the infancy narratives, Joseph is is clearly mentioned surrounding the birth of Jesus. Mm-hmm. We learn from Scripture that he was a righteous man, a just man. He uh, certainly was puzzled by Mary having conceived a child. And, <laughs> yeah. um, of course, the we know that uh, he had decided he didn't want any harm to come to her because people would think it was adultery and they were betrothed. So he uh, decided to divorce Mary quietly. That really shows how good and just he was. He didn't want any harm to come to her. But then the angel spoke to him in a dream, and he learned that Mary had conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the angel instructed him to take Mary into his home. So it's really beautiful. You know, when Mary received the message of the angel Gabriel, she said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. She had that obedience of faith. But we see the same obedience of faith in Joseph. Though we don't have him saying anything like Mary did, the gospel tells us, the gospel of Matthew tells us, that when he woke up from that dream, he did as the angel had commanded him. So really we have the fiat, let it be done to me, 
of Mary and also the fiat of Joseph, the mm -hmm. unspoken fiat of Joseph. We also know he was a carpenter. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that he taught Jesus the skill of skills of carpentry. We know he was the protector of the Holy Family. He defended the Holy Family in the flight into Egypt. Tradition has that he he died before our Lord did, and. Uh, yeah, he's the patron saint of the Catholic Church, the patron of the Universal Church, because he's the defender, the protector, the guardian of the Holy Family. So he's also the protector, defender, and guardian of the family of the Church. You mentioned tradition has it that he died before Jesus did. Uh, is this because he would have been there at the cross had he been alive, but it's not mentioned that he was there? Correct, correct. All right. Well, any advice on, I, I feel like I should be relying on his intercession more as a father. Uh, any suggestions on something to, to read or a thing to keep in mind for fathers? Yeah, you know, Pope John Paul II wrote an encyclical on St. Joseph. It's called The Guardian of the Redeemer. Hmm. So I would recommend that of everyone, fathers included. But I also recommend devotion to St. Joseph for all fathers, husbands and fathers, because mm -hmm. he's a, such a great model of being a holy husband and a holy father. Yeah, I really encourage that devotion. St. Andre Bassett, the Holy Cross brother who was canonized a few years ago, was renowned for his great devotion to St. Joseph, and he had that the beautiful oratory of St. Joseph built in Montreal, which is the largest church in the world that's uh, huh. under the patronage of St. Joseph. And um, reading the life of Brother Andre helped me to kind of appreciate St. Joseph more in my own life. He's also the patron saint of a happy death. Hmm. Um, so that's another good tradition. All right, well, coming up, we'll chat about the Diocesan Heritage Pilgrimage, and we'll have questions submitted by you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. We want to thank all those who support Redeemer Radio and support shows like this through donations financially, as well as donating time. We have so many great volunteers that help out around here at Redeemer Radio. If you would like to get involved and are able to support financially, or with your time, please let us know. You can go to RedeemerRadio.com, or you can stop by the station, either in Fort Wayne or South Bend. We would love to have you as part of the team. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here, and we're talking about a pilgrimage that's coming up. It's the Diocesan Heritage Pilgrimage. Was this something that you wanted to happen, or somebody else suggested, and then you guys put that together? Well, several years ago, I led a diocesan pilgrimage to Washington and Emmitsburg, to the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, and then we visited the Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, also Mount St. Mary's, the Grotto of Lords at Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg. And we had a lot of people who went and they loved it. So ever since then, it's been a number of years, people have said, been saying to me, Bishop, when are you going to have another diocesan pilgrimage? So uh -huh. it's been in the back of my mind. And then I thought, oh, why not a diocesan heritage pilgrimage? In other words, let's have one more in our area mm -hmm. uh, just to see like the, the historic places that led to the establishment of our diocese. Our diocese was founded in 1857. So I decided, and I talked to uh, 
Verso pilgrimages about organizing this, and they're, and they're doing it. Uh, so we'll have this bus trip to really explore our diocesan history and the history of the Catholic Church in Indiana. And it will begin on Friday, July 20th. I hope a lot of people will come, by the way. And it will go till the evening of July 22nd, which is a Sunday. So the first place we're going to go, and this might be a surprise to people, is Bardstown, Kentucky. And you say, well, what does that have to do with the with the history of the Catholic Church yeah. in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Well, this is it. The, um, the first diocese in the United States was the Diocese of Baltimore, and that encompassed all of, of the United States at that time, including us. And that was um, in the late 1700s. I want to say 1787 or 1789. And it was in 1808 that the Diocese of Baltimore was split, and four dioceses resulted. Hmm. And that included Boston, New York, Baltimore, and Bardstown, Kentucky. So Bardstown included this whole area, included the whole state of Indiana and other states. So there's a cathedral there, it's called a proto-cathedral. And back, by the way, it's called the Basilica of St. Joseph Co-cathedral, proto-cathedral. So we already have a St. Joseph connection. So that still stands in Bardstown. So since that was really our cathedral for the area that encompassed the state of Indiana, mm-hmm. I thought it would be good to see that going back to the early 1800s. So we're going to begin there, and it's it's close to Louisville. It's now not a diocese anymore. Bardstown became the Archdiocese of Louisville. Okay. And so we're also going to visit the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, because it's not far away from uh-huh. Bardstown, so may as well. And from there, we're going to go to St. Meinrad Arch Abbey in St. Meinrad, Indiana, the famous Benedictine monastery. Mm-hmm. Some of our priests studied there because they have a seminary. I have never been to St. Meinrad. Okay. And I've been here in, in the diocese for over eight years. I've always wanted to visit. So I thought, well, that's very historic mm-hmm. um, and really has had a big impact on the church life of the church in Indiana and beyond, mm-hmm. the Benedictine monks from St. Meinrad. So that seems like a good place to visit on this pilgrimage. From there... We will go to Vincennes. Now, I have been there, and you might say, well, why are we going to Vincennes, Indiana? Well, Vincennes was carved out of the Diocese of Bardstown. So, in the year 1834, about, what, 20-some years after Bardstown was established, the Vatican, the Pope, established the Diocese of Vincennes, which included the whole state of Indiana and actually part of Illinois as well. So this was the first diocese that was actually, where the sea city was actually within the borders of the state of Indiana. Right. And uh, the cathedral there is the Basilica of St. Francis Xavier, still stands. And the first bishop of Vincennes, the first bishop in Indiana, of Indiana, came from Mount St. Mary's. 
in Emmitsburg, Bishop Simon Gabriel Brute. And actually, they're working on the cause of his canonization. He was the spiritual director of of Mother Seton. And I went to Vincennes, to this basilica, several years ago to pray at the tomb of Bishop Brute, because... I already knew of Bishop Rute from Mount St. Mary's because he was like one of the founding priests of Mount St. Mary's. In any event, I thought that would be very good for us to visit the Basilica of St. Francis Xavier and to go in the crypt and uh, pray at the tombs of those first bishops of Indiana because there are a number of them buried there, Bishop Rute, and then some of his successors Hmm. are buried there. And by the way, Vincennes eventually transferred and became the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Okay. But interestingly, Vincennes itself is part of the Diocese of Evansville, because later Evansville was created as a diocese. But anyhow, when Vincennes moved to Indianapolis, there were two dioceses for the whole state. The southern half the Diocese of Indianapolis and the northern half, the Diocese of Fort Wayne. Again, that was in 1857. Hmm. Then we're going to go to Terre Haute, where I've never been, to visit St. Mary of the Woods. And of course, Indiana's saint is there, Mother Theodore Guerin. I've been wanting to visit there. I haven't been there yet. The Sisters of Providence, Mother Theodore Guerin's sisters, they were the first Catholic school educators in our diocese, together with the brothers of the Congregation of Holy Cross. The first Catholic schools in Fort Wayne were staffed by Mother Guerin's sisters, and she came to Fort Wayne. So we'll go and be able to see the campus. That's where the mother house, that's where she is of the Sisters of Providence, and she is buried there. So we'll have an opportunity to to go and celebrate Mass and pray at the tomb of St. Mother Theodore Guerin. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we'll go, come back to both Fort Wayne and South Bend, because we're going to have buses on this pilgrimage from both Fort Wayne and South Bend. So I hope people will, um, will register. I think it's going to be a good spiritual experience and fun at the same time. I know that if they register before April 15th, they get an early bird rate, and they can get more information. Any of the listeners who want more information on this diocesan heritage pilgrimage, you can go to our diocesan website and uh, check it out and register. All right. You mentioned some of the places you've been to, some of them you had. I was curious about the ones in Kentucky. Have you been to the Proto-Cathedral in Bardstown or the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville? No, I have not. Okay. So, it's really neat because the only place that we're visiting that I have been to is Vincennes. Okay. So, the other places I haven't been to. So, I'm, for me, being on a, uh, this pilgrimage is also exciting to go to places I haven't been to, although I love history and I love church history. So, I'll be brushing up on things, too, before the pilgrimage. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll chat about St. Paul versus his name is Saul and more questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Are you darkness or are you light? Do you light others' candles or do you snuff them out? 
Jesus Christ has always been a polarizing figure precisely because he cuts to the very heart of our humanity. He's compared to a sword so sharp it separates bone from marrow. We are given stark choices. Follow God and be light, or deny God and be darkness. Listen to St. Paul share this contrast with the Ephesians in chapter 5 of this Sunday's readings. Brothers and sisters, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is a shame even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it is said, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Notice Paul doesn't say we were once in darkness and are now in light, but rather, we were once darkness itself and are now light in Christ. Let's pray. Father of grace and mercy, we were once darkness and are now light in you and through you. Help us be fed by your brilliance so we may be light amid the darkness. Amen. Tune in to Redeemer Radio for more reflections as we walk through this Lenten season together or pray with them anytime on the Redeemer Radio app. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking questions that you've submitted. Our first question comes from Eric from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish in Fort Wayne. He emailed us this question. Following up on a recent question, if Saul and Paul are the same name but in two different languages, Does it still have the same meaning? I have heard that Paul means little one and Saul means great one. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, when we had this discussion, I remember before how I had mentioned that these are basically the Hebrew name was Saul and um, the Latin name was Paul. And so you have these dual names, which was actually common in those days. But I know the Latin Paulus for Paul does mean small or humble. Hmm. So you're correct on that, Eric. You said little one. I think it's the same thing, small or humble. But from my understanding, although I haven't studied Hebrew, Saul means asked for or prayed for. So really, even though we're talking about the same name in two different languages, they would have two different meanings. Okay. A St. Charles parishioner asked, is a parent required or expected to choose the name of a saint when naming their own child? Good question. I would say it's, it's not definitely, it's not required, but it's laudable, I, I would say, um, to choose a saint's name. But it's not necessary, it's not required. In, in canon law, we were talking about canon law earlier, mm-hmm. we do have a, a norm of the church that addresses this question. It's canon 855. And it basically says that parents should make sure that the name given to the child to be baptized is not foreign to Christian sentiment. So in other words, it doesn't have to be a saint's name, but they can't get or they should, must not choose a name that's foreign to Christian sentiment. Okay. You might say, well, what is that? Well, let me give you an example. Satan. 
mm-hmm. Lucifer, Hitler, hmm. Stalin, naming a child something like death or whatever, you know. So we would not allow a child to be baptized with such a name that goes against Christian sentiment. Okay. But it really is the parent's choice to to name their child, and certainly we do encourage saints' names. All right. Some I know some parents who, if they don't have a saint's name for the child, will sometimes choose a saint's name for their middle name. Mm-hmm. Okay. One of our listeners asked the following question, is there a saint to pray to about a miscarriage? The patron saint you know, against miscarriages and also against abortions is St. Catherine of Sweden. Mm-hmm. And she was the daughter of St. Bridget of Sweden. Oh, okay. Um, but you know what? I'm not really sure why she's the patron saint against miscarriages. I know that she, after her husband died, she she took a, or I guess even while he was alive, they, they took a vow of mutual chastity. And But I'm not quite sure why she's the patron saint, but listeners, if they're interested, can uh, read about her, St. Catherine of Sweden. All right. If you have questions, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we've got more of your questions, including questions about the head of the family, dating, and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. We'd like to thank you for listening to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Uh, Just to let you know and to remind you that you can also listen to our other shows that are produced at Redeemer Radio, Dr. Doctor, which is our medical show, and also the Kyle Hyman Show, which is a daily morning show. These are available however you're listening to this So it's available on our FM stations as well as streaming online. And past episodes can always be found in the archives through the Redeemer Radio app at the Redeemer Radio website or wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking questions that you've submitted. We had a listener shared on a recent radio program. I heard a priest and apologist answer the question in a Catholic family. When there is a husband and a wife present, who is the head of that family? I thought the response given was ambiguous and not helpful. Would appreciate it if you could address this matter in your weekly program. I have been married for 50 plus years. My wife and I have been blessed with four children, seven grandchildren, and one more due soon. Thank you for all that you do on behalf of your flock. Thank you. Uh, you know what? That's a difficult question to answer briefly. Okay. Um, so I just hope that my response is helpful <laughs> and not ambiguous, but it's a little bit complex. Okay. So it's not because of um, it gets into interpretation of scripture mm-hmm. where there are two passages that mention the husband being the head of the wife and head of the family. So. Those two passages, if, if people aren't aware, are in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, particularly verse 3, and then Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, which is really verses 22 to 24. So we're talking here about how to interpret that. And I think there's various aspects of this so that we have a good Catholic interpretation. 
So I think one point to begin is what does head mean? Mm -hmm. And I think there are several passages in Paul's epistles, in Paul's letters, where he uses the term head to refer to Christ as head of the church. And so when we look at those two passages which speak of the husband as being head of the wife, we need to kind of be enlightened by what that means. You know, how was Christ head of the church? Mm -hmm. Well, St. Paul writes in Ephesians, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. I think when we look at the analogy of a husband being head, I think this really can help us because then what does Paul say when he talks about a husband being head for his wife? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Mm. In other words, imitate Christ's headship. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So it doesn't mean that the husband's to be the boss or to dominate his wife. Mm -hmm. Being head really means giving his wife sensitive and intelligent leadership. It's a leadership that grows out out of love. And of course, there's communication and there's consultation between the spouses. And as head, the husband provides for and cares for his wife and, of course, the children. And I'd say bears the primary overall responsibility for the family. The way St. Paul words it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he says, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So in order to be truly head of his family, a husband must first be submitted to Jesus Christ. And really what he's called to do is mediate the love of Jesus to his wife and to his children. Now, some people get upset at these teachings of St. Paul, especially when he goes on to speak of subordination, where he says, wives be subordinate to your husbands which gets to this issue of headship as well. Mm -hmm. Well, one has to see this in context. You can't just take one verse out of Scripture and not see the context because St. Paul, in many places, insists on the equality among the baptized. So there is a true equality between the spouses. St. Paul, in that famous sentence from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hmm. So there is this true equality. However, when it comes to role or function, then we're getting into the area of where there is a subordination. So two persons can be absolutely equal in their status as persons, but there can be a a subordination. You know, one of the best things, ways to think about this, I think, is in the Holy Trinity. You know, all three persons of the Holy Trinity are equal in in divinity. 
Hmm. You know, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. We profess this when we pray the, the creed. But notice in Scripture, we, the Son is always subordinated to the Father. Mm-hmm. He's subject to the Father. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, when all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be everything to everyone. And, and you know, so also the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's fully God, like the Father and the Son, eternally equal mm-hmm. to the Father and the Son. So in marriage, in Christian marriage, the wife's role of subordination doesn't take away from her God-given equality with her husband. Some people kind of get very upset in these passages from Ephesians and Corinthians, especially the part where it says, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. But again, they need to see the context. And if you even look earlier on, what does St. Paul write? He says, husbands and wives should be subject to one another. Hmm. You know, clearly the wife subjects herself to her husband by accepting his role as head. Uh, in other words, she cooperates with him in filling that role to the children, etc. But in a sense, you could say the husband subjects himself to his wife by accepting and doing his best to give her love and care and providing. And so there is this mutual subjection of husbands and wives that that St. Paul says very clearly, husbands and wives should be subject to one another. So anyhow, I, as I said to our caller, I hope my response doesn't seem ambiguous or not helpful, but it's a complex thing. Mm-hmm. I'd say the most important thing is to understand what headship means and looking at the way Christ is head of the church. And the other thing is the insistence upon the God-given equality of husband and wife. All right. And I suppose, too, if we're to imitate Christ as husbands, that is a, a life of service and of sacrifice. Right. Not, Giving your life. Not, yeah. not like you said, one of domination or anything like that. Right. All right. Well, Angie Lingenfelter from St. Therese Little Flower in South Bend said, what do you suggest we as parents ask our young adult children to consider, think about, look for when dating and choosing a spouse? How do we help guide them toward healthy, holy relationships? I think that's a really good question. I kind of talk a little bit with my own family about this because I'm close to my nephew and nieces. And and, and when they're looking at choosing a spouse, I, I, I always think that the first thing is you want qualities in a future spouse that are what you'd find in a good friendship. I think that's really important and that there's a that the other person is helpful to your moral and spiritual growth, mm-hmm. not detrimental to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very, very important thing. I think it's important that it's a person who would help you to grow in virtue and to avoid vices. They're also, you want someone who has that self-giving kind of spirit that they're, that it's not all about themselves. You know, a good marriage, there has to be self-sacrifice. So if you see narcissistic 
tendencies in the person, that's not going to be good. So those are some things. I think you want someone who, you know, you want basic agreement on essentials, on important things about children, etc. I'm not saying you agree on everything, but <laughs> if but on the essentials, it's okay. really important. There's the idea of being able to handle conflicts through good communication. So you don't want someone who's not open to dialogue or to compromise. By the way, if you're talking about agreement on on major things I, I for example questions about children and raising of children is really important so i say look for all of that look for maturity look for some a person who's going to help you to grow in virtue someone who is emotionally able to uh, give of himself or herself in marriage and in the family all right well, we've talked several times about transubstantiation, where the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ or the Eucharist. And another question submitted was, what would Bishop recommend for someone seeking a deeper appreciation of the Holy Eucharist? Any books or traditions on the subject? Well, one thing I would recommend even before books would be Eucharistic adoration. Mm-hmm. I mean, just spending time praying before the Blessed Sacrament, whether in the tabernacle or whether exposed on the altar for Mm -hmm. adoration. But there are some classic books that I would recommend for someone who wants to study the theology of the Eucharist more, to grow in one's understanding. Uh Uh, I used to teach a course on the Eucharist at Mount St. Mary's Seminary, and one of the texts that I used was, it's titled, A Key to the Doctrine of the Eucharist. And it's the author is Abbot Vonier, this is, I think, one of the real classics on the Eucharist. Again, it's, it's titled A Key to the Doctrine of the Eucharist by Abbot Vonier, V-O-N-I-E-R. I mean, that's almost, that book's almost 100 years old, I think, but, okay. <laughs> but it's really, really excellent. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want something a little more contemporary, one of the graduates of Notre Dame, who's a theologian, wrote a book a few years ago that I really like. It's entitled Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. And the, uh, the author is Brant Pitre, P-I-T-R-E. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, the title is Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. It's published by Image Catholic Books. So, Brant Petrie got his PhD from Notre Dame and teaches uh, sacred scripture at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans. So, if you're especially interested in the biblical roots of the Eucharist, I think reading that, uh, his book, you, you kind of have a better understanding of the Last Supper because you understand through Jewish eyes. Sure. You know, really good. Another thing is the great St. John Paul II. He uh-huh. wrote an encyclical on the Holy Eucharist. It's called Ecclesia de Eucharistia. And I really think it's, uh, if you write, might recall, the year of the Eucharist, it was the year 2004, 2000, began 2004, went into 2005. This is a wonderful encyclical letter of John Paul on the Eucharist. And then at the end of the year of the Eucharist, by that time, Benedict XVI was elected Pope, and he wrote a apostolic exhortation called the Sacrament of Charity. Hmm. That's also very beautiful. So those two, they're pretty new. I mean, when you think about it, recent yeah. papal encyclicals on the Eucharist uh, by John Paul and by Benedict XVI. 
Another really great book is Scott Hahn's The Lamb's Supper. Sure. And really, it's it's helps us to understand the Mass. The subtitle of the book is The Mass as Heaven on Earth. So Scott Hahn is always good, and and um, especially if you enjoy Scripture. And, and he sees so much, for example, he looks at the book of Revelation and all the images there and how they relate to the liturgy, the sacred liturgy. So anyhow, those would be some suggestions for for deepening one's knowledge and understanding of the great mystery of faith, which is the Holy Eucharist. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Bishop, for joining us today. And could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Be happy to. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Tune in next Wednesday at noon for another new episode of Truth in Charity. Bishop Rhodes will have just returned from his mission trip to Ethiopia with Catholic Relief Services, and he'll share his favorite memories and lessons from the trip. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.